The United Nations has more peacekeepers here that are dying, that have died, than in any other previous peacekeeping operation. Wow. That's incredible. Do you think people know that? That's not a headline I've ever seen. Well, no, because it's, it's happening out of sight, right? This is all happening in the desert. It is a massive military operation happening out of public eye. Nicholas Huck covers West Africa for Al Jazeera. And for the last few months, he's been reporting in Mali. It's the site of a growing conflict, one that involves foreign soldiers from more than 50 countries, an absent government, rival tribes fighting over land, and armed groups who are manipulating it all to kill for their own reasons. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Mali is a massive country. It's the size of France and the United Kingdom combined. It's bigger than Texas. It's a huge country. And Mali is a crossroads of cultures, politics, and terrain. There's the Sahara Desert in the north, the dry Sahel in the center, forests in the south, and not that many people. Those open lands are prime territory for smugglers moving goods to Europe and other parts of Africa. They also attract armed fighters. There are active branches of al-Qaeda and similar smaller groups. And people are worried the Islamic State of the Greater Sahara could be expanding in the region. A lot of the focus in the past has been on the north of the country, not on the center. And it seems that the center has become a new front, uh, a place where armed groups are trying to divide to try to control the area uh, and to confront the Malian state, the Malian government. This week, we're talking about that new front in Mali. There was one massacre in particular that made headlines in March. This is We had been expecting some violence, but what happened on Saturday was horrible. You cannot conceive of such carnage in our country. And tell carnage that not Mali is going through a multidimensional crisis. We have witnessed killings that Mali has never known in its history, in its entire history. More than 150 people died in one day. The first images we saw were shaky cell phone videos of huts reduced to rubble. And in the ashes, there were children, limbs, livestock. Men with machetes and guns had come and attacked indiscriminately. Nick met a survivor of that attack. He was one of the first to call for help. He called the Malian forces. He called the local mayor. He called the UN hotline. They showed up 48 hours or 24 hours after. President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita disbanded one militia group accused of carrying out the massacre. Mali's prime minister and his cabinet resigned. But in the months since, we've seen more violence, more deaths, and more people displaced. Tens of thousands of them. They immediately encircled the village and shot at everything that moved. So everywhere, people were screaming, children were screaming, who tried to run were shut down. We can never go home. It's not safe anymore. The government keeps pointing the finger to what it calls 
terrorist or jihadi groups. But what's unusual is that there is no claim of responsibility. Usually when the group, the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara, um, commits any attacks, it likes to claim it, to show a propaganda video. When groups like Jamaat Nuswat al-Islam al-Muslimin commits uh, attacks, again, it likes to promote it, to show that it's doing something. But we're seeing none of that. So who is carrying out these brutal attacks? It's a complicated answer, and we'll get there in a minute. But first, let's talk about the victims. Violence is worsening in the long-running dispute between the Dogon and the Fulani peoples. There's history here. They've clashed for generations over grazing land and resources. Dogon accuse Fulanis, and Fulanis blame Dogons, each community accusing the other for the killings and attacks on their villages. Before the conflict, Fulani herders grazed Dogon's cows for them and bought food that the Dogons farmed. Mali is made up of a myriad of ethnic groups. There are so many of them. You know, you've got the Tuaregs, you've got the Bambaras, and you've got, of course, the Fulani and the Dogons, who are very two very important ethnic groups. Now, um, the Fulanis are like, um, you know, the Romas of Europe. They're a semi-nomadic group that travel around um, f- trying to find a place to feed uh, their animals. The Dogons are traditional hunters and farmers that believe that their role is to protect the forest, a forest which, in their view, is sacred. And the Fulanis want to feed their animals in that forest or on farmland. And that's where the dispute starts. The heart of it is the challenge of climate change. This is the center of Mali that all of this is happening, a place called Mukti. And Mukti, in the Fulani language, means the place to assemble and to gather. So historically, it's a place where Fulanis, Dogons, and other ethnic groups converge because that's where there's water sources, etc., etc. But it's the height of the dry season. And so farmers are having a hard time to grow their food, and the herders are having a hard time to find places to feed their animals. The work is hard. When you don't find enough food for them, some of them die. So it's not easy. So it's a very difficult period for the people, both Dogons and Fulanis. Both communities are suffering from malnutrition, from the lack of food, and, you know, our need of urgent humanitarian assistance because of that. So the Dogons are farmers, the Fulanis are herders, and they're fighting over land. That's something we've seen a lot of in this region and others, of course, but it sounds like this might be more complicated than just a land dispute. Well, you know, something that's interesting is that the survivors that we meet of this violence live together, live side by side, not just side by side, but they trade with one another. We see Fulanis playing with Dogon children, and there's no problem. So if it was really deep um, intercommunal violence, deep suspicion, then these two communities would not be living side by side, would not be trusting their children to play with the children from the other community. What's clear is that armed groups are, are exacerbating existing grievances. So the Dogon militias are acting, they say, to protect their community. 
So where did these Dogon militias come from? Some say they were supported from the beginning by the Malian government. It started in 2012, when other armed groups came into northern Mali and started taking over cities, like Timbuktu. The al-Qaeda-linked armed group Ansar Deen, increasingly active in Timbuktu, it wants to destroy shrines, tombs and mausoleums that it considers to be un-Islamic. They destroyed ancient artifacts, imposed their own laws, and the Malian government was totally unprepared. Although Mali had been seen as a model democracy by the international community and, in fact, by the rest of West Africa, actually, uh, state authority crumbled very easily in the north. We, we came close to the jihadis uh, taking over the whole country. Angry soldiers overthrew the president, they say because of his inaction. But that just made the power vacuum even worse. The Malian army as a whole is understaffed and is focused on the north. And so to protect the center of the country, it started cooperating with these Dogon hunters who knew the terrain much better. First, they acted as guide to the Malian army. Then, some say, some security experts say that the Malian army started to arm these Dogon militia groups. So, Dogon militias, who before maybe would fight off Fulanis with, you know, would probably shout at them. Or maybe fight with them, you know, in different ways and would mediate through the local mayor. Well, now they have AK-47s, guns that they didn't have access to just a couple of years ago. And that's just making the things worse. And that's just increasing the violence. The conflict in central Mali is happening in remote areas, but it's spilling into the capital, Bamako. I was talking to a school teacher who had to close um, his school, and that's on the outskirts of Bamako because he had received threats from armed groups. Uh, so, so, so it's really edging closer and closer to the capital. It starts with a, with, a, with a nice pat on the back. You know, you should be changing your curriculum. Maybe you should start teaching um, the Quran. Or then it comes, and then they come and they say, you know, maybe you should stop um, teaching in French. Why should we be teaching in French? And then it, it becomes more and more coercive. When shopkeepers or school teachers are, are, you know, kind of tapped on the shoulder and said, stop teaching French, teach the Quran instead, where do people turn? Can they go to the government or do they have any re- recourse for, for safety? Well, like, that, that's the heart of it. That's the exact, that's the heart of the problem here is the absence of the state. Right now, the ones that have the upper hand are the armed forces. It is the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara, Jamaat Nusrat al-Islam al-Muslimin that have the upper hand. And that is a frightening situation for the local population who are, who, if they want to stay where they have to stay, they have to cooperate with those groups. And it's a frightening situation for people who fear that these groups are moving forward closer and closer to urban areas. Both Dogons and Fulanis have come to the capital, Bamako, not just to escape the violence, but to be closer to a government that has failed to protect them in their villages and home. They hope that here, Ibrahim Boubacar Keita can deliver on his promise to bring back peace to Mali. Nick reported that a lot of people are pressuring President Keita 
to deliver on that promise, like the prominent Malian imam, Mahmoud Diko. Back in April, he organized the biggest protest that we've seen in Bamako in decades. Uh, and you could see people holding signs and protests saying, down with foreign forces, the government needs to resign, the UN needs to leave, and he was leading those protests. So, so we went to interview him. Mahmoud Diko, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. And what was really interesting, during the interview, there were in fact protests around the mosque where we, took, where, where we had those interviews. And I keep asking him, what's going on? What's going on? And he had this smile and said, you'll see. And so after the interview, we walked out and their tires being burnt, police firing tear gas. The protesters want President Keita to resign. Critics of the government say the Malian army needs to stand on its own without foreign troops supporting it. Everybody knows that the government is missing in action. It has not been able to send its reach. Last week, Nick brought this up with Mali's foreign minister, Tiyibile Drame. Tiyibile Drame, thank you very much for talking to Al Jazeera. Absolutely, thank you. Well, that was quite a, quite a feisty um, conversation. Why aren't Malian soldiers able to protect the population? When you see protests the other week, because people say they feel unsafe, that the security forces are not a source of protection, but a source of danger. Why is there such no, mistrust? One, 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 one cannot say honestly that the Malian government and forces are unable to protect the Malian people. I think that he's on the defensive. The government is on the defensive. The pressure is on them to try to resolve the issue. Uh, the International Criminal Court is investigating what seems to be, for them, crimes against humanity, war crimes. And yet the government seems to be doing very little. And it's affecting the very fabric of Malian society. It's spilling across the border to Burkina Faso, to Niger, where we've seen attacks there too recently. And, and, and it seems that it's just an expanding war really being played out, out of sight, and most importantly, without real dialogue. The government isn't talking to these groups. And if the government isn't talking to these groups, it might be because the groups involved keep shifting. Like the one Nick mentioned, Jamaat Nasr al-Islam wal-Muslimin, which says it's fighting on behalf of the Fulanis. It didn't exist three years ago. And now it's a main player in this conflict. And all of this is happening, escalating right under the nose of the United Nations. This is unlike any other peacekeeping operation um, that the UN has ever experienced. First of all, it's the deadliest one. I went to Gao, to the north of, of the country, where they have, where it's, it's basically the front line of what seems to me an unending war. I landed there in a military plane um, w- with the Canadians. And, and you have armies from so many different nationalities. You have the French, the Dutch, the Germans. You have um, Tunisian, Egyptians, Bangladeshis, Pakistanis. Um, really, you have the armies of the world there. It seems united to try to fight this front. You have 14,000 UN peacekeeping forces. You have 4,000 French forces. It is a massive military operation, Maliga, happening out of sight, out of public eye. And, and why? Why 
Molly, is this strategic? Is, is, is there a greater purpose for all these countries to feel like they need a piece of this and they need to be there? Well, the Sahara Desert is a, a trafficking route for, for drugs, for migrants, um, for arms. So there is a conflict in Libya um, and Libyan armed forces need arms. Well, it will be trafficked through the Sahel and the Sahara Desert. And then, of course, there's the issue of the migrants and the illegal migration that goes through the Sahara. So, you know, it's no surprise that you have German soldiers there or French or British or Dutch soldiers. For them, patrolling the borders of the European Union starts in the desert, in the Sahel, right here in Mali. So there are all these foreign troops in Mali, more than a dozen countries with a stake in this region, but they're pretty tightly focused on what they call counterterrorism efforts. So is the Fulani-Dogon conflict one that they're watching and one that they're worried about? It's perhaps one that they're officially worried about, but it's one that they're scared to get involved in. There are many French soldiers that are here. France justifies this as saying, we're, we're here to protect uh, French interests and to protect our former French colonies. But especially here in Mali, while it's true if the French forces were not present, then perhaps the government of Mali wouldn't be able to hold it to this day. There is deep suspicion on why they're not able to, for instance, intervene when there is intercommunal violence. Why are they so keen to be involved in, in, you know, in, in anti-terrorist operation, as they call it, in the north of the country, but not help Malians uh, when it's closer to Bamako. So, so th- there's, there's this deep suspicion of, of the presence of, of France. Remember that France um, relies on some of these African countries like Niger for uranium, for their energy necessity for oil and gas. Um, and, and so they need these West African countries on their side. But what, what has happened is because there's so many French soldiers here, these countries have not been able to develop their own armies. And so therefore, you know, you don't have the Malian armies there to protect their own people. And that seems like it kind of brings us full circle to the vacuum in central Mali and the chaos that fills it. Nick, you've covered many, many places for Al Jazeera around West Africa, around the world. You keep going back to Mali again and again this year. What is it about this story that pulls you in? I mean, I define myself as a migrant. You know, I migrated to West Africa. I'm not an expat. And I'm the child, I think, of climate refugees. My parent, my, my mother's from Burma, my father's from Bangladesh. So when you go into Mali and you see these people fleeing um, their homes, you have a window not just on what's happening in Mali, but on humanity, on these people who are on a move, having to leave their, their houses and their homes behind and having to rebuild their, their life again and having to redefine their identity. And suddenly all these questions arise for these people who before have never been confronted with these questions. You know, Fulanis were Fulanis, that's it, you know? But now they're like Fulanis from Mupti or Fulani from Ugosago. And Dogons were Dogons. 
not Dogons from the Bankas area or Dogons associated with the militia group. Suddenly, identity has become important. Suddenly, when, when you have this feeling of identity, then borders are built. So boxes are made, you know? And, and, and the reality is, is Dogons and Fulanis mix. They're not separate entities. They're, they're just one people. I've been meeting these survivors of these attacks, both Dogons and uh, Fulanis. And so I met this, this one man, his name is Bukhari Bari, a, a Fulani. He lost his father. And just next to his makeshift tent is a Dogon, Ali Gundo, and he lost his son. What's incredible in this story is the not just the violence that we've seen and the descriptions of what we've we've seen, Malika. We've seen like people who have survived them um, hacking and the shooting. But what's really uh, incredible is this this community that's divided, but yet united by grief. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilve with Alexander Locke, Morgan Waters, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Seth Samuel was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is the social media producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Nicholas Huck, Eva Kasperwitz, and Rashid Makansi. We'll be back next week.